Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Debbie, if you ask you anything about me, he don't answer. Is that clear? About you? What's he gonna ask? Well, about last night. About you and me. Not a word. Look, I'll explain. Everything's okay, Reverend. Debbie's putting some sheets on for you. If there's anything else you want, just ask her. Thank you, Mr. Miller. See you in the morning. Hurry it up, Evie. Don't want to keep the Reverend up all night. Uh, wait, um, how many nights did this poor man sleep here? One night. <laughs> we'll turn the mattress. Buenos dias, Jenna. Buenas noches, Senor Bart. Tonight we're talking about a Spanish filmmaker whose films that we discussed tonight are mostly not in Spanish. We're talking about Louis Buñuel, as the French say, or Louis Buñuel, as the Spanish say. He's definitely an international filmmaker, but Spain claims him as their own. He's one of the major figures who really got me into becoming an obsessive movie watcher. He was an early way in for me into foreign films. A lot of it has to do with his absurdist, surreal touches, and it sort of was enough like Money Python or something for me to be interested in his stuff. I think uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie was probably the first one of his I saw, and that definitely is absurd and weird and perfect for a high schooler who uh, is starting to get into film. But you're not a huge Boonwell fan, are you, Jenna? Eh, he's all right. <laughs> you can't not like him in the sense that he has influenced pretty much everyone that I like throughout time. <laughs> he's just one of those figures where you just go back to it and everyone's like, yeah, and Bunuel was an inspiration. He was a pretty massive inspiration in his way to the 60s because of the fact that he inspired a ton of people who were in music and politics even and comedy for sure later on art of course <laughs> the biggest one of all i mean him and, and dali and max ernst and all of the surrealists are completely interesting people who always have fascinated me the thing with bunuel and me is that i'm not catholic so there's like a whole bunch of Bunuel that I'm missing out on because he's speaking in a language that I only partially understand and can pick up on some of the time. So, I mean, I like Bunuel, but he doesn't click with me in a way that I think he's clicked with other people and clearly with you. I don't know if you have memories of young little baby Bart in church and, uh, watching these movies and having this stuff come rushing back to you or what. But, you know, I watch it and I'm like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my, the, the Italian side of my family is definitely really Roman Catholic. Easter's really uh, were, were big holidays for, for that side of my family. So I definitely got a lot of Catholicism in the springtime. And, uh, you know, I got my first communion and I never got confirmed. I was sort of on my way out, starting to find my own path, and, and Catholicism wasn't really fitting into it. Um, but I definitely understand the Catholic mindset in a way. I don't really get, um, you know, a lot of the rules. I'm not even really sure what the catechism is. I, I don't know much about the specifics of Catholicism, but I definitely understand Catholic guilt, and that 
definitely feeds into my appreciation of Bunuel for sure. Maybe the fact that he's a lapsed Catholic. He was he was raised by Jesuits and uh, had this strongly Catholic upbringing, but then he turned his back on it and became an outspoken atheist. His famous quote is, thank God I'm an atheist. And maybe that's why he speaks to me. It's like, this is what happens to somebody who has uh, had Catholicism forced upon them, but then decided fairly early on that it wasn't really for them. It's funny because I find Bunuel's atheism sort of fascinating and also underwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I watch his movies, they really, to me, just scream Catholic. Catholic, 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 Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And they're clearly critical of Catholicism. And we'll definitely get into the fact that he basically got barred from entire countries (laughs) for (laughs) blaspheming. But he's so wrapped up in the guilt aspect of it. And I would much rather see him pushing atheism, which I find way more fascinating. But like Bunuel, and this is maybe part of the reason why he doesn't fully click with me, is that like where Dali is like in your face surreal, but doesn't have a lot to say, Bunuel has a lot to say, but he doesn't get in your face about it. (laughs) And I kind of wish he did. I kind of wish that he spent more time in his films laying out beliefs and alternatives and options and subtle ways of considering. And he does that in a way, but what he's doing it with is with, to me, I've sort of settled on, I think that his obsession is with the concept of doubt. I have a good quote from him where he's talking about the film Nazarene, which is 1959. So we're not going to talk about it. But he talks about the concept of doubt with that film. And he says that it is, quote, it is like falling asleep in bed with a cigarette. It could go out or it could burn the whole house down. Doubt is like that cigarette. It can be nothing or it can destroy everything. And that's all I wanted to express. And I kind of feel that that is what he is approaching with all of his films. He's not presenting you with something to do or to think. He's presenting you with how people think and and how people react to the thoughts that they think. And a lot of the times that has to do with guilt. And of course, that has to do with the subconscious, which is the whole thing <laughs> for surrealists they love freud yeah and, and they love the marquis de sade and they love sigmund freud right and then that i think is really interesting to talk about when it comes to the 60s because you know obviously when we're coming out of the 1950s the beat generation you know you're coming from people who already love freud and they love jazz <laughs> which are both the things that heavily rely on channeling the unconscious. Then you throw like pod and LSD into the mix and suddenly the surrealist movement doesn't seem so wacky. (laughs) So you are having kind of this, this whole generation that was in a way raised on things that the surrealists were trying to push and that they thought was going to be a real movement at the time that turned out to sort of fizzle out in the time that they were pushing it initially in the 30s but you know suddenly we see it kind of actually come to fruition in the 60s so I find Bunuel really interesting to talk about in that sense I think that he really fits into the 60s mindset in a lot of ways and I think that he kind of really taps into a bunch of interesting things that are happening and, and again, influences the vast majority of people that I find really interesting in the 60s, like, you know, everyone from Abby Hoffman and the Yippies to uh, like the 
San Francisco mime troupe to the Beatles, you know, I mean, like to country Joe and the fish, <laughs> the fugs. <laughs> There's a pretty much total agreement that Bunuel really hit his peak in the sixties. He sort of stumbled on his mature style or maybe not stumbled on, but he finally got to make the movies that he's always kind of really wanted to make that were sort of there in his soul, but there wasn't a cinephile atmosphere where he could quite make the movies that he wanted to make. I mean, back in the 30s, in 1929, the peak of the surrealist movement, he and Dali made on Chen Andalou, which is, you know, the most famous surrealist film. And the imagery in that is just, you know, nonstop, bizarre, inexplicable images that, that sort of suggest certain things. And, you know, everyone should see, probably has seen Chen Andalou, an important film for a reason. And then he, he went on to make Lodge Door in 1930, which has a lot of surrealist imagery. But that's about as surrealist as movies ever really got, you know, end to end. You know, you go into a 60s Budwell film thinking of him as a surrealist and you sort of picture all of this, like, you know, Dali paintings come to life on screen. And he really doesn't do all that much with surrealist, bizarre imagery. It's more in his storytelling and the way that he makes connections and you know people's behaviors um, how they behave in unexpected ways his visual style is actually kind of flat in a way that's what really struck me watching all of these 60s movies again right is that his movies are not visually all that exciting i mean he'll have most of his films have a dream sequence or two where he he gets a little crazy there's a lot of you know, double exposure type images and, and, you know, some weird stuff going on. But for the most part, they're pretty much like bam, 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 just following the plot or following the the occurrences in the story, just one thing after another after another with few transitions. It's, you know, not very atmospheric. And I think a lot of that comes from the, like, well, basically, after his early surrealist films, he stopped making movies for a while he just couldn't he was you know, barred Lodge door was <laughs> yeah <laughs> Lodge door was banned from french theaters uh you know couldn't get played anywhere and he uh moved around moved to america worked at the moma and and you know eventually ended up in mexico as a producer producing films and by uh 1947 he was able to direct his first film in mexico so this is you know 17 years after Lodge door and then he made a series of films in Mexico that were low budget and very much in keeping with what the studios were, were cranking out at the time. I mean, he would always choose stories where he found some sort of interest, but they really were just kind of cheaply made you know, melodramas for the most part. He made, between 1947 and 1959, he, he made 18 films, uh, mostly in Mexico, and very few of those are considered, you know, like, peak Buñuel. Uh, Los Olvidados in 1950 is you know, one of the few really essential ones that has surreal touches. It's just, it's about poor kids in Mexico City and the awfulness of, of poverty, And uh, but it, it's done in a really you know, powerful, surreal way. And, uh, you know, other than that, maybe Nazarene in, in 1959, which you've already brought up, is another prime Buñuel. But the rest, you know, maybe L or the criminal life of Archibaldo de la Cruz, but you know, there there are certain Mexican films that, that people tend to champion, but the the really the peak Buñuel doesn't really 
come until the 60s, really starting with Viridiana in 1961. But I think some of that flatness of his visual style and his economy in filmmaking comes from all this experience he had just cranking out these Mexican films, just one after another after another, where he um, you know, just had to get the story on film in the shortest amount of time as possible. And that carries over into his mature style in that there's not a lot of fancy stuff in there, not a lot of artsy photography or, or anything. He makes his points and moves on. He finally was able to make the movies that he really wanted to make in the 60s thanks to the French New Wave and, and this, uh, you know, young people opening up the possibilities of cinema and they're creating this audience that wanted to see odd films that don't necessarily follow a straightforward narrative or just, you know, interesting experimental sorts of things allowed Bunuel to really explore his more surrealist style of storytelling so he sort of fed off the new waves of the 60s. And at the same time, the young filmmakers were loving what he was doing, you know, de definitely inspired by some of his earlier films. And so there was a, a nice sort of symbiosis there. And, and, the, and the 60s is, you know, that's why it all sort of came to a head when it did. Bunuel is quoted as saying, and I've, I've watched <laughs> watched him in interviews saying uh you know that he makes films really for himself and i think that from what you mentioned that he went from these really cheap low budget in mainstream films from the 50s to jumping into having creative freedom and i think that he was much more interested in showing people having reactions and then letting other people watch that so that they can then have reactions <laughs> and it doesn't really require too much razzle-dazzle. At least he didn't think it did. Though I would argue that it creates enough of a disconnect that it can sort of take me out of watching it personally because I end up liking more strongly visual directors who really play more with the medium. But he's always intelligent and thoughtful. So, I mean, like, there's that. I mean, like, <laughs> I think he is one of these sort of love-hate directors you either completely click with it or you don't get it or i mean even ideally you you get so angry watching it <laughs> that you spend a month fuming about it that's exactly what he's trying to do he's trying to rile people up i mean a big part of what he's doing is he's putting these you know, not particularly likable characters on screen and watching them interact with each other trying to figure out why people do bad things, you know, that's sort of an essential part of what he's trying to get at and how, you know, seemingly good people are capable of doing awful things and seemingly awful people are capable of doing good things. Trying to explain the contradictory nature of human behavior, how there's, you know, this combination of these forces that are working within us that push us, you know, one way or another. And that's why I really connect with his movies. They always suck me in, even when they don't have a particularly strong dramatic storyline I still am just totally enthralled by watching these characters and their behaviors and how they interact with each other you're a blasphemous god hater who loves feet we get it <laughs> yeah uh, we probably should jump into the first movie because we've been going on for a while but I just want to mention that I've got this list of 16 motifs tropes that continually come back in all of these Bunuel films. I'm not going to go through the whole list now, but I've got some of the obvious things, like we've mentioned Catholicism, foot fetishism, 
he, he always tends to focus on animals. As they come up in each of these movies, I'll point them out and maybe we'll discover a few more. Maybe you'll have some that I didn't notice that you'll, you can bring up. But that's part of what people find so appealing about Bunuel is that they love picking out these little touches that he likes to put in every one of his movies, uh, thematic touches or visual motifs. So we'll hopefully be able to address some of those as we go along. Yeah, I think really the the first film that we're talking about here, everything that you just mentioned is overtly uh, on display in The Young One. In a man, where you gonna run to all on that day? Run to the rock, rock, won't you hide me? Run to the rock, rock, won't you hide me? Run to the rock. Which came out in 1960. This movie is just abhorrent and cruel. (laughs) (laughs) It's known as white trash in the United States. And it is. It's about white trash and it's about the American South. As mean as this movie is, it also feels deeply honest, (laughs) (laughs) which isn't a total diss on the south but you know the 60s in the south was certainly not a nice place for a black jazz musician named traver who is falsely accused of rape and then ends up stuck on an island while fleeing from the cops he ends up on this island with a sheltered young teenager named evelyn and a racist gamekeeper named miller we see evelyn's father die right as the movie starts and that's exactly when miller starts to like literally grab her legs and say she's she's getting there almost it's almost bedding time you know kind of creepiness she's gets completely treated like a piece of meat and how old is she like 13 yeah 40 i was gonna say 14 very like a young teenager who is maybe just going through puberty and the whole movie is basically about this miller guy trying to take advantage of her sexually evelyn trying to navigate a world that she is not really fully equipped to handle and also is dealing with finding herself as an orphan. And then Traver basically being stuck in the middle of it and trying to escape and also navigate this world of vicious and cruel white people. How'd you like it? (laughs) It was a Boonwell that I never thought too much about after I saw it the first time, but I really enjoyed watching it again this time. It is. It's it's so harsh. It's so cruel. But it's also the perfect example of Bunuel showing that the worst human beings still have a reasonable side or, you know, there, there are no hearts of gold in Bunuel, but there are glimmers of kindness sometimes. And watching this awful Miller, who's actually not the most awful white man in the film, another guy named Jackson who comes with the Reverend Fleetwood, because they heard that Evie no longer has a family, so they came to see uh, how she was going to be cared for to bring her back to the mainland to go to school. And, of course, Miller fights against this because he wants Evie for himself. But, yeah, Miller, as awful as he is, you know, a horrible racist who doesn't even know that Traver is accused of rape, he, he, you know, starts firing at him with his shotgun just because he's a black man and, you know, sinks his boat for no reason other than he can and 
nasty pedophile guy, but he learns a bit of kindness. He's he's got it in there somewhere. And Gee. Yeah. <laughs> Zachary Scott, who plays him, I think does a really good job. He's most famous as, as playing kind of sleazy guys in, in old you know, studio noirs, like he's the boyfriend of Mildred Pierce in that movie who gets shot at the beginning. And he's usually a young, kind of handsome guy with a finky mustache. Uh, in this, he's middle-aged and not very sexually appealing at all. So for many reasons, it's really unsavory watching him put the moves on Evie. What I find really fascinating about this movie is how it portrays this <laughs> this trinity of racism, pedophilia, and religiousness uh, is really, I think, really fascinating and really unique, especially for 1960, because Traver, he gets weirdly sexualized by the film in a way that is clearly meant to inflame the sensibilities of a white 1960s audience who is probably uncomfortable. I would say that anyone going to see a Bunuel film is, I would guess, is most likely in the know enough to be uncomfortable with the concept of lynching a guy in cold blood, but also probably just as nervous about black sexuality on display. You kind of get a lot of scenes of him speaking in innuendo. I'm pretty sure he has his shirt off for parts of the movie where he's tied up and kind of appealing to Evelyn where all of the other white men do not. He is the only one who is, able to get close enough to her even though he's not after her because he's not a pedophile he does have a couple of moments i guess of you know uh she's an attractive young woman kind of stuff and they have a bit of a connection cover yourself up yeah (laughs) you know he gets embarrassed enough uh looking at her as it is which is you know it's its own it's 1960 what can we say so uh but that's quite interesting because then you know, when he, in comparison, this this sort of idea of a, a sort of sexually active black man is then being compared with this period explicit pedophilia rape scenes, uh, the likes of which are white on white. So, you know, <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, it, which is a sentiment that gets then echoed by this preacher who uh, shows up with Jackson when they're going to check on Evelyn and, and see how she's doing. And she pretty much openly, you know, she doesn't know enough to tell him, I suppose, in a way. She's sort of still riding that line of being a child who, when told, don't tell anyone, tries not to tell anyone. But it becomes increasingly obvious to the Reverend that she has been, you know, raped and has uh, lost her innocence by Miller and yet he's also willing to overlook it because of the fact that Miller's willing to marry her. So it, it just suddenly now you have morality being thrown on this sliding scale of the comforts of selfish men, basically. Whatever these men are comfortable with is where the, the line of morality comes down. So whether that's in murdering a, a black man for daring to be uh, alive in adjacent to you to whether or not someone's like a pedophile creep uh you know if this is this acceptable or oh well he's willing to marry her i guess it's fine you know <laughs> evie in this movie of course is the first of um, many 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 innocent young girls who lose their innocence in, in the course of a bunuel film i think every single one of the movies we watch has this figure to one degree or another bunuel's sense of innocence is definitely 
this figure of this young girl who doesn't know anything. He, he loves to sort of torture this, this innocent young thing and, um, you know, heap all of the evils of the world onto her just to demonstrate how capable humanity is of doing evil. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for the abused little girl that keeps showing up. That's the first of the tropes I'm, I'm mentioning here. I feel, I feel like we need, like, a sound for that. Like, <laughs> boom. Uh, you know, the, the part of that trope, though, is kind of what bugs me about Bunuel in general, I think, is part of the things that kind of takes me out of his films, is that I don't think that he ever really fully is able to get into a woman's head. <laughs> which you'd think wouldn't be so hard as we are all human beings. He gets better at it as the decade goes. But I, you know, in this movie, I found Evie to be, I felt that she was about as used by Bunuel as the characters use her. She's just there to be the innocent truth teller. She never really seems like a real person when she's not performing for the men around her, which is in turn performing for the audience you know like she doesn't feel like a fully developed character she also doesn't have much in the way of acting skills and that's part of the problem (laughs) that too i mean but i feel like in comparison to these really fully developed portraits of southern white masculinity and and even to a lesser degree black masculinity they're more cutting and they're more pointed and then for her it's not he is sort of lacking an empathy for her. I feel like she kind of sleepwalks through abuse in a way that even if she didn't fully realize what was happening, I don't know that she would be so lamb-like. You know, I don't think that she would be so easily led. But who knows? I also love that that it's Bernie Hamilton uh, playing Traver, who is very studly and handsome in this movie. And uh, as you're saying, quite sexualized. I knew I recognized him from something. He's the old dumpy captain in Starsky and Hutch, uh, Captain oh. Doby. He did not uh, age particularly well in a dozen or so years after this. But he's good. I really, he's a fairly complex figure. He's definitely a good person, but not 100%. Well, you were saying that Bunuel doesn't give his female characters much depth, but uh, I think in the next film, Viridiana... does a really good job making the title character quite complex and interesting. We're following her inner life more than anybody else in the movie. Wouldn't you agree? Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this movie was supposed to mark Bunuel's triumphant return to Spain. The first film really, uh, other than a short documentary made in the early 30s called Los Erdes, the the first film he made in his native Spain, but he had all sorts of difficulty when uh, getting it made. He had to get the script approved, you know, went through a few drafts before the Spanish censorship board uh, under Franco, so very strict, uh, allowed it to even be made. And then once it finally came out, Spain did not approve of it. So uh, it, it couldn't get any kind of release at all until Mexico agreed to claim it as their own production so as a mexican film this was able to get you know go to con and and get distributed worldwide but spain would not allow bunuel to release 
this film. You know, it's it's not really any wonder why. It's a, it's a pretty blasphemous film. It has to do with a novice named Viridiana, played by Sylvia Pinal, who's in a convent, on the verge of taking her vows as a nun. Um, but before she does, the mother superior sends her to her uncle's house, who has been her financial guardian. Uh, she doesn't know him very well, but his health is not good. And then Mother Superior says, go and see your uncle before you can never have an opportunity again. Uh, he's your benefactor. And uh, so it's sort of against her will. Viridiana goes to, and stays at his house, is not too comfortable with the worldliness of his lifestyle, but is able to get along fairly well until uh, Don Jaime, played by Fernando Rey, her uncle, decides that she looks so much like his deceased wife that he needs to marry her. And, uh, of course, Viridiana refuses. And so Don Jaime, w with his maid uh, Ramona, drug Viridiana. And when she's unconscious, Don Jaime takes her back to her room and is planning on taking advantage of her sexually. But anyway, the uncle ends up dying and Viridiana ends up inheriting his estate she already thinks that you know she's lost her innocence to him because of what he did, or she's she's uncertain of what actually happened. But uh, so she and she has to share this property with Don Jaime's illegitimate son, who he never knew. And uh, so in, in Viridiana's half of the house, she's invited all of these uh, poor beggars to stay, and and you know she's teaching them the way of the Lord, and and you know, giving them uh, food and you know, something to occupy their time. So the the rest of the movie is just watching how her good intentions, uh, using her wealth to benefit the poor, uh, kind of backfires on her and uh, takes a lot of pot shots at religion in general and how good deeds and, and praying is, is not enough to make a, a fulfilling life and the innocence of thinking that you can overcome the evils of man through religion is uh, you know pretty ridiculous. You didn't like this movie very much. It was too Catholic for me. <laughs> <laughs> I found it kind of a slog. I seem to be alone in that interpretation of it for what it's worth. People seem to absolutely love this movie. This is, I think, one of his most well-known easily. For me, I felt like a three-and-a-half-hour movie. <laughs> I just, <laughs> it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on, and it makes the most blatant points. You know, I, I think there's a degree of films that were shocking for their time that they tend to not age well in general, especially when it comes to undermining a, a religion that I don't really know enough about in, in a fine point way to cheer on all of the points that he's dunking. You know, in a way, it also just sort of felt like a self-flagellation film, which I kind of would put in the same category as Martin Scorsese's Silence or uh, Tori Scola's Ugly, Dirty, and Bad, all of which are, you know, kind of Catholic wrestling with guilt and walking away from God or looking at different economic classes and seeing what exactly is the difference between them kind of stuff. I mean, besides all of his sort of dunking on this idea of a nun who is so shamed by the concept of shame that she walks away from her religion that is so powerful that even just like a hint of the concept of doubt 
that is put into her mind by her creepy uncle is enough for her to feel that she is a ruined woman and, and now has to walk away from everything that she's owned. You know, that kind of stuff is, it's, it is, it's interesting, but it, <laughs> it doesn't land with me in any sort of way. I think that there is, and then there's this whole aspect of this movie about charity, as I said, and about taking in these beggars. She, you know, is trying to do some good. And of course, the second that she invites every homeless person in the area into this mansion they just completely wreck the place it just gets to the point where i'm not i don't really know what i'm meant to be thinking i guess you know there is this sort of obviously teasing of the church's love of charity and this idea that the downtrodden being lifted up to equality and yet at the same time of course the church is looking down at them and then if they god forbid are in the same sphere as these people then all hell breaks loose so like, I'm clearly missing something because, again, everyone loves this movie and you love this movie. So why do you love this movie? Up until recently, this was my favorite, Boonwell. And it's because, I mean, I think it's just watching all of this play out through Viridiana's eyes. Like, I think Sylvia Pinal does such a great job at, you know, showing that dread she has in her heart of, you know, just giving into temptation or even being human. Like... She feels safe in the convent because she's protected from humanity. Like she has nothing but, you know, fear of human behavior, of the way that godless people behave. And um, so just watching her, her fears play out in this movie, I think is really fascinating. And, and you, I, you, you kind of feel it in your guts as she's, you know, put through the ringer. See, that is the most fascinating part of this movie to me is this idea that, you know, religious uh, idolatry and high concepts are all good and fine. And then if you put actual human beings into the mix, it all goes to hell. (laughs) You know, I mean, which you get most overtly in the scene where all of these hobos break into the house and make such a mess and they end up in exact poses of the Last Supper until uh, a woman comes up and says, hey, everyone, look at this, and, like, flashes her (laughs) cooch to (laughs) to everybody. (laughs) Which, of course, is, I mean, it it is just, that's a perfect representation of humanity doing their best to follow religion. You know, you can even mistakenly end up in this perfect posture and this perfect tableau of uh, what it would mean to be an enlightened and perfect human being. And and of course we have to just ruin it. <laughs> well, even at that point, it's all kind of fun and games. You're sort of enjoying watching all of these uh, poor people who've never had any nice things in their life, just sort of wreck the, the whole mansion, like destroy tablecloths and glasses and just all the nice things. It's, it's actually really satisfying, but then things kind of get out of control and it ends up in another near rape of Viridiana, it slowly turns really ugly and disturbing. This famous set piece in the film takes up a good chunk of it and just watching it progress from like them trying to have a nice civil kind of meal that that wealthy people would have and just watching it disintegrate little by little until all the human flaws are on display and all of Viridiana's dreams and ideals are completely shot to hell. It's such a famous sequence for good reason, just watching humanity progress from civilized to reverting to their animal natures is is really cleverly and subtly done in this scene. And uh, yeah, I think it's a masterpiece and it's just, I don't know how you can be bored by it because it just 
hooks me from the beginning and has me enthralled throughout more than anything that he's really trying to prove with this movie. It's just that the melodrama of it even works for me. It just lost me after the first half hour, I want to say. I don't know. I mean, maybe at some point I'll watch this again and it'll all click. (laughs) (laughs) But as it is, I just found it too caught up in its own Catholic stuff. And I just (laughs) just didn't care. You must like the scene where Don Jaime's son played by Francisco Rabal, who's in nearly all of these Bunuel movies. He was Nazarene. He's Monica Vitti's fiancé at the beginning of La Clice, mm. uh, and he's Hippolyte in Belle de Jour. Anyway, he's uh, Jorge in this movie, and he's inherited his father's mansion and shares it with Viridiana. And, uh, and there's a dog that's straining itself to keep up with a cart that it's tied to the back of, and, and Jorge uh, rescues this one little dog, pays the owner for the dog and, and now owns this dog and but it turns out the dog just wants to you know, stay with the cart and keep running behind it as fast as his little legs can take him and you see another dog that's uh, tied to a cart and it's a good microcosm for the whole film and Bunuel tends to use animals in this way and a lot of his films are you know highly symbolic and also goes along with this whole idea that humans are, are basically just animals who think they're better than that because uh because of religion, maybe, but it's these two forces that are pulling at humanity, this, uh, you know, their animal nature and their desire to be, you know, civilized and good and rise above their animal natures. So I'm adding animals to the, so to, to, the uh, <laughs> to, to the motifs uh, that we're seeing in, in all of these. I'm good with the motifs. I mean, the, I think The Last Supper is a motif we mm-hmm. see at least in one other film. There's just something very 101 about this movie to me. It feels, it almost like has a student film esque. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <feeling>. come on. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I'm not winning any friends by saying this. I know I'm only losing listeners. I, I did I did enjoy the ending of this, which, according to Bunuel's last sigh autobiography, biography, he says that the original ending showed Veridiana knocking on her cousin's door and then the door closing slowly behind her. And because the censorship in Spain was, uh, he says, quote, notorious for its petty formality, they rejected that out of hand. So he had to invent a new ending, which ended up being way more suggestive, <laughs> in which uh, it sort of implies a menage a trois of Veridiana joining a card game with the son saying, oh, join us, stay. She, you know, like she's not too proud. So it's the maid and it's the, the son and Veridiana all sort of, you know, playing a card game (laughs) you kind of know what's going to happen next he knew they'd end up shuffling cards together (laughs) he says something like that yep the endings of uh of bunuel's films are all very puzzling but they're all kind of perfect in their own way he kind of always manages to pull the rug out from under his characters and the audience at the end of all of his movies he goes for a plot resolution, then he always seems to take things one step further in a pretty satisfying way. I mean, I guess this ending is pretty straightforward. Viridiana has given up being better than human and has uh, you know, allowed herself to sink to the depths of you know, most of mankind. Well, I, yeah, I love the next film, for what it's worth, which is uh, Exterminating Angel from 1962. The 
plot is just that there is a dinner party at a mansion and all of the guests cannot leave a room. <laughs> That's it. That's the plot. I mean, there's things that happen, but I don't even think it's relevant. The stuff that one, a couple of the things that are relevant is that at, right as everyone shows up, all of the workers start to flee the house, just right as all these 20 guests arrive. And they have a, there's a bear and a bunch of sheep in the house as a joke that don't ever get rolled out, but they're sort of introduced and everyone gets pissed about the domestic help leaving uh, and leaving them all. And then they all go out and they eat and then they all retire to the parlor or wherever they are. And suddenly it's 4 a.m. and nobody's leaving and the hosts are like, when are they going to leave? But they don't, nobody wants to be rude. And so they sort of all sit on their hands and wait for what everyone else is going to do, which ends up turning into this crazy situation in which everyone feels they cannot leave the room they feel physically barred by a room, even though there's, it's completely wide open. It's this, <laughs> they can walk to the door, even they can see the, the exit and that they can't, they just cannot bring themselves to leave, which then kind of spills out after days start to pass. And they end up literally breaking down part of the wall to get to the water pipe so that they can have anything to drink. There's a crowd starts to form on the outside that is wondering where all these people have disappeared to. And they, they're treating it now like a lockdown, a, a contagious zone. And so nobody's allowed to enter. They're all afraid to go in, knowing that nobody has left for days and they're all locked in. And it's a great, it's a great movie. <laughs> it's completely dreamlike. I mean, you know that the origin of this film was just Boonwell's at some party where nobody was willing to leave. And he was like, Oh, I'm going to make a movie about these snooty parties where they just go on and on and on and nobody wants to leave. But it, it turns out that the, this whole movie is sort of the Last Supper sequence in Viridiana stretched out to film length and sort of done in reverse in a way. Or not in reverse, but this, you know, whereas in Viridiana it starts out as beggars pretending to be these upper class people, you know, living in the high life and they, you know, slowly revert to their animal natures. This is a movie about a bunch of, you know, Mexican aristocrats who have all these manners and nice things and you know, they're trapped in a room and they slowly revert to their animal natures as well. It's uh, two ways to approach the same idea. But I don't like this one as well as Viridiana. Why? I find it too hard to distinguish all the rich people from one <laughs> another. Like, I've seen it a couple times. That, and I don't, like, Sylvia Pinal I recognize. And she doesn't even have a particularly big role because she's Viridiana. The butler, or the, the one member of the domestic staff who stays, Julio, is played by Claudio Brooke, who is Reverend Fleetwood in The Young One. And he's Simon of the Desert in that movie. So, you know, the two actors I recognize in this movie, I can distinguish, but all the rest of them are just the same person. There's a young couple who's, they're engaged to each other and they're supposed to get married the next weekend, but they can't because they're stuck in this room. They meet a tragic end because they're uh, too innocent to survive in this animalistic world that this high class party has devolved into. I think this one is a lot more endless than Viridiana because there's it's just people stuck in a room there's no nothing moving the plot forward at all it's you're, you you just want something to happen and, and that's the point it's like why can't you people make something happen and 
and it's it's effective in that way, but it seems a lot longer than it's you know, 91 minutes uh, because there's nothing moving the plot forward. I think that this is definitely Bunuel's best film and pretty much a perfect movie because it has perfect heightening. And I think that the fact that you cannot distinguish each character from each other is completely on purpose <laughs> and also irrelevant. And I think this is actually part of what I end up not liking about Bunuel more often than not is that I think all of his characters are irrelevant. I don't think that he creates characters. I think he creates concepts and he has characters who are there to push those concepts forward or to enact certain concepts i don't think that he really writes recognizable or memorable characters though and i think that all of his movies that end up being about a character are the movies that don't land with me (laughs) and so the movies that are more about just concepts and really embrace that and especially embrace that kind of unconscious dream logic are the things that really land with me but they're also i think in part not well, it's, I guess it's not totally true, but they they're also tend to be a little less religious. <laughs> or mm-hmm. they're about religion in a broader sense. And so they're, they're just broader films. And I find them a lot more, like that's when it clicks for me. So for Exterminating Angel, if you want like an actual completely intelligent interpretation of this, go ahead and Google our buddy Roger Ebert. <laughs> because he has the best interpretation of this film, which is to sort of say that the the dinner guests are representing Franco Spain and talking about the Spanish civil war and bourgeois fascist and all of that kind of stuff. He has the smartest interpretation of this movie as far as really making sense of it. But I also think that for me, what I like about this movie is just how easy it is to apply it to any scenario. (laughs) I would love to see a remake of this, like I, almost like a beat for beat remake of this movie with like the current U.S. Senate <laughs> all locked in the Senate chambers. I would love to see that. It would be amazing. It would be just as cutting and it would be just as relevant because really at the heart is, you know, as as you were saying, this is about horrible, rich bastards <laughs> and kind of what comes out when they are sort of forced to confront themselves. So you already have this idea of people that are just too polite to walk away from a situation. So there's this complete fear of being an individual, a fear of striking out on your own. You're always looking for the cues of what everyone else is doing to figure out how you act. And if somebody does something that you even view improper, like one of the guests at 5 a.m. decides to go to bed. He takes his tuxedo jacket off and the hosts say like, oh, that's how he will regret this the next day. But we should take our jackets off just so that he <laughs> he doesn't feel like it's not so obvious his, his horrible faux pas. So he's not embarrassed. <laughs> right. You know, so it's perfect heightening. It's the old theater kid game of the two of you have to look at each other and, and mirror the moves that, that one person's doing and, and uh, or like, you know, a game of telephone even in a way that just it heightens till it gets more and more surreal and more and more nonsensical and while all of that's happening you have people that are just straight up dying and nobody just total disregard is paid to them you have a guy who keeps pointing out exactly what's happening he says look at how look at how interesting it is that nobody seems to they keep making moves to go towards the door and yet nobody will walk across the threshold why do you think this is he can sit here and spend the whole he spends days talking about what is happening and pointing it out, but doing 
absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> Completely useless. Just pontificating about the, the concepts that are of, of what's happening. And then you have people who get angry about how someone else is combing their hair. They start to turn on each other. You get people that are just being completely nasty and, and rude to everyone else because they feel bad. All of the women in this movie are quite interesting because they they keep waiting for men to help and protect them. And of course, it's the opposite because all that they end up doing is being further bullied by these guys or no everyone's still waiting for some sort of leadership from men that are again just doing nothing which i think is something that again is easily applied to those types <laughs> just leave it at that because it is that broad you know it is it's about those types of people and as arbitrary as they get stuck in this room they they get released in in the exact way i mean they they create some sort of nonsensical concept of look at us now, we're all in the exact same spots, you know, and, and they try and follow that logically through as if there was any logic to begin with, <laughs> as if there was anything driving this other than just pure inanity. Plus, this has a sequence where a hand attacks a woman, a disembodied hand. Yeah, one of the dream sequences that are always uh, visually more exciting than anything else in a Bunuel film. Uh, you You call this one of his least religious films and i i see why you would say that because there's very little discussion of god or anything religious by all of these upper class people but it, my my interpretation of it is really a, a theological one it's uh, you know sort of a, a job story in a way where god has decided let's put these rich people to the test who think they've got it made they have these wonderful lives where everything is perfect let's put them to the test and let's see how they manage for months on end, not being able to leave this room and see where all of this wealth and, and all these possessions and all their manners and, and civility, where that takes them, see if they can survive. It's Bunuel being playful again. Here's an atheist who uses an act of God as a plot point, but uh, it really does seem like you know, God is testing these people. And I think that really becomes obvious when these rich people finally escape or, you know, the ones that are still alive managed to escape. And it's followed immediately by this church service where the same thing happens. It's not really clear whether the main characters who are in this mass, you know, they're in the front row. It seems like they managed to leave before everybody else. But as the clergymen are leaving the church, they find that they can't pass through the door to the exit. So Boonwell is saying, okay, so that's what happens when we've got all these godless rich people stuck in a room together. What happens when we've got this room full of God-fearing religious people? Will things end any better for them? Like, will their religion get them through this? The rioting that results outside and the violence perpetrated by cops to protect religion. It seems like, no, it actually turns out even worse when it's a bunch of quote-unquote good people who love God and follow their religious teachings carefully. I think anything that Bunuel makes, I think he really cannot, as much of an atheist as he proclaims himself to be or that he was, he cannot get away from Catholicism, <laughs> which I understand because he's coming from Spain. I understand because he's coming from France. You know, I mean, he's coming from a bunch of heavily Catholic nations and 
you know, of course, I'm not really looking for that half the time. And so I am excited when I can latch on to something that isn't like always going back to it. But one of the scenes in this that is just so overtly religious to me is when these three lambs, baby lambs, wander into the room where the rich people are who haven't eaten for days. And of course, they all descend like jackals on these <laughs> on these uh, poor innocent lambs, which is maybe also our innocent animal symbolism for this movie. Well, so after exterminating Angel, which he made in Mexico, Buñuel returns to France. It's always been kind of his artistic home base to make a version of Diary of a Chambermaid in 1964. Based on a novel that was previously made into a movie by Renoir, an English language film, Boonwell's got a, a fairly different take on this, and, and he enlisted Jean-Claude Carrier to co-write the film with him, and the two of them after this film would uh, sort of go on to collaborate on every future project, or just about it. This is the beginning of Bunuel's French period, and uh, and all of the French films from this point on are considered, you know, major works in one respect or another. And I think that part of it is that Bunuel found a perfect partner in, in Carrier. They had a similar sensibility, you know, they became great friends, and they really you know, knew how to work together well. This is the story of a chambermaid who arrives from Paris on a train in provincial France, set in the 30s, so uh, kind of between the wars sort of time period. And Celestine, played by Jeanne Moreau, has been employed by this family who just lost their previous maid to an unwanted pregnancy caused by Monsieur Montaille, the husband in this family. He's played by Michel Piccoli, who can't seem to keep his hands off any female. But we're to understand that's because his wife, Madame Montai, is frigid and, and won't put out for him. I was going to say, we, we understand because it's Michel Piccoli. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Madame Montai is the kind of the head of this household and is Celestine's boss and is, is very strict. But like a lot of Bunuel characters, uh, these characters who seem particularly awful at first kind of show their, you know, their softer sides. They're not, uh, you know, she's not completely awful and that's this is a movie where i think all of the characters in this film are particularly memorable and all of them are right on the cusp of being kind likable people and just awful horrible people and the fun of watching this movie is just watching all of these characters sort of waver between these two sides of themselves and uh it puts you off balance this film because you're never really sure who you're supposed to sympathize with or who who's good who's bad and uh, it's pretty interesting for that reason. I think Jeanne Moreau is terrific. I always like her in everything. She's always kind of felt a little miscast in this movie for me, just because she doesn't seem like she should be playing you know, lower-class women who are you know, only semi-literate. She seems a little too strong and willful and classy to be totally convincing in the role. But I also really love the way that she plays it, where... You're never totally convinced what her motivation is at any given time and the way that she plays off of each of these different characters in this household, in the Montai household, and off the neighbors. She sort of gives a little and then closes herself off a bit. And she expresses 
so much in the film with, with very little dialogue, really. It's the most lovely to look at of any of the movies that we watched, at least up until this point. I mean, it's not even a particularly well-known cinematographer on this film. I just think that Bunuel had the money to make this you know, a, a nicer-looking film than, than he'd previously been able to make. It's got a lot more atmosphere, this 30s provincial France. It's got more of a sense of place than the other movies that we've seen so far, I think. What do you think of this movie? All right. (laughs) (laughs) None of the characters I find intriguing. I I didn't think that they were fully formed characters. They just felt like chess pieces that get moved around a board. Really? Um, but the board's interesting and the game's interesting <laughs> to me that this this is really a movie about about how much you're willing to put up with and boundaries and what is too far and what is acceptable, which I think in part is really a movie about fascism. It's a movie about, you know, that fool you take for granted and, and appease even and, and expect to catch him and expose him later on. But he gets the better of you because Everyone's providing him heaping portions of the benefit of the doubt. And in the end, it's just you and that guy. (laughs) I think part of why, you know, you end up immune to it is because of this lack of boundaries from and and at work. I think there's also a a pretty big commentary about how employers treat us like like objects and how we kind of let that happen to us. And I, I know that Bunuel was certainly sympathetic to workers' rights, and and so that's definitely a big part of it. But yeah, I mean, in the end, Celestine is, you know, she abandons her class and and allows the world to slide into shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So in the end, she settles into her own estate. I mean, she lets a murder go completely unsolved because she was too late and she couldn't prove it, and she doesn't care. Like I, I, you know, she she feels a little bit bad about it, but she what? Yeah, please. Okay, so Celestine has finally settled into this odd household. You know, she's sort of gotten to the rhythm of the old man, the father of, of Metamontai, who has this real foot fetish, makes Celestine, you know, wear these special boots and read to him while she's wearing these boots. And uh, and she's, she's a little weirded out by it at first, but she's a woman of the world. She's seen it all and kind of settles into that. And uh, she sort of wins over Madame Montai and, you know, gets in with the other staff at the house and has a pretty nice life there. She's even, uh, you know, Michelle Piccoli is constantly trying to get her in bed and, and she refuses. Like, she clearly is a an experienced woman and that's part of what's so frustrating to him is that, you know, she's she's had plenty of men. Why won't she just let him have a piece? But she sort of puts him in his place and refuses to, you know, have sex with him. And that kind of has, you know, worked itself out. But then the old man dies, the, you know, the foot fetish guy. And she's like, well, now I I don't know what my place in this house is anymore. So I'm going to leave. But on her way back to, to who knows where, because there's kind of this idea that she's left Paris because something bad happened there. Like she's sort of hiding out in the country, you know, she she's a city girl, but isn't allowed to be there anymore for some unclear reason. But before she can leave, she finds out that the little girl has been raped and murdered. The police, you know, stop her and say, ask her if she has any knowledge about this. And she knows, you know, she suspects that it's Joseph because she's seen him 
act inappropriately towards this little girl. And, and then she, like, asks him some questions and kind of traps him into giving a semi-confession. And she says, okay, I'm going to get him to tell me this completely. I'm going to agree to sleep with him, and then he'll tell me the truth. And Like, it, it, it all feels like she's trying to redeem herself in a way. Like, she has done something awful in Paris that she's running away from. And this, you know, trying to bring justice to Claire, who she says... You know, somebody asks her why she wants so badly to solve this crime. And she says, because I liked little Claire. And because she knows that it's Joseph and she spends all of her energy now that she's back working for the Montais again, uh, trying to, you know, win over Joseph and get him to confess, agrees to sleep with him, agrees to marry him, agrees to, like, move to Marseille to open a bar with him and you know all of this just so that he will confess that he murdered Claire and he doesn't so she proceeds to frame him for it like she steals a metal piece off of his shoe and puts it near the crime scene so that the, he gets arrested and she thinks okay finally justice has been served and, and Joseph is behind bars where he belongs and but there's through lack of evidence he gets released so you know she tried her best she definitely is not oh please you know, she doesn't try she, she <laughs> appeases him at every step of the way she gives him only more and more power she tells him i i'll do anything for you as long as you admit guilt what does that mean it doesn't solve the murder which i think is bunwell's point is that the admission of guilt is completely meaningless in the face of something that's already happened which is in itself completely meaningless i mean i think that this is maybe one of his stronger atheist films in that sense because all of it's just pretty arbitrary but as far as uh you know religious in in any sort of moralistic way celestine is completely bankrupt <laughs> <laughs> She doesn't start that way. I mean, you do have you you have this sense of empathy for her, and then by the end, I mean, she's just completely abandons everything that has any sort of shred of morals. Yeah, no, she gives up any uh, you know hope for redemption by choosing comfort, marrying the awful captain who lives next door, and bossing her staff around, and being just as awful to them as she'd been treated previously. And that's not redemption. That's redemption, baby. That's what it looks like. <laughs> It's Boonwell saying, but isn't this what we all want? And uh, clearly, no. You know, seemingly this is uh, this is a happy ending for Celestine, but we don't feel that way. And clearly, Boonwell does not. And then, of course, even worse, uh, Joseph gets off, and you know, this right-wing anti-Semite proud boy, he does end up <laughs> opening his uh, really <laughs> his little bar. Yeah, and, and with his little wife who's there that he can uh, offer to sailors who are in town. And uh, he uh, joins in this, uh, you know, march of fascists at the end. And it's such <laughs> such a downbeat, negative, pessimistic ending. I love it. It's great. But, I, I you know, I think just dramatically as a story, this movie, I would have thought, would have sucked you in somewhat. And it's not very religious at all. And... Seems like it could have been your sort of thing, but I guess it wasn't. It has one of his, uh, Bunuel's most overtly comedic lines, which is Joseph saying, I'm not a crook. I love the army and religion in my country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like uh, you could take that line uh, in its context in this and, and basically explain like the vast majority of 60s youthful rebellion right there and in, in, in that line alone. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I know it's not a, character film i, I mean, disagree it, i can't see it that way 
I think you've got this collection of colorful, memorable characters who are not necessarily sure of what they want and they're trying to use each other to figure out what it is that they actually want. And what happens in the film has purely to do with the personalities of everyone involved. I don't feel like he's using them to make any particular point. Like by the end, it's clear Bunuel has a real point he's trying to make. But I think as far as the storyline goes, it's a real character piece. There's no sense of anything happening for a particular reason other than this is what these particular characters find themselves doing. These characters who are full of contradictions and are a bit lost, and this is how they react to each other. Of all of his movies, I think this is the most like a character piece. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be some day in the future where I watch this again, and I'm going to wonder what I was smoking back when I recorded this, but it just lacks something for me. I think you knew how much I love Boonwell, so you sat there watching all these movies with your arms <laughs> crossed and said, I am going to hate every one of these movies because Bart loves them. <laughs> I don't hate these movies at all. It's not hatred, I just... Well, here's the thing. So, okay, the next film, right? Yeah. <laughs> the next film, Simon of the Desert... which is 1965. This is a super short little movie. It's like 45 minutes long. There's different stories, conflicting stories as to why that is. In Last Sigh, he claims that there were financial problems during the shooting. He had to cut a half of the film. There is other anecdotes, one from Sylvia Pinel that says that she claims that they wanted to do an anthology film with Bunuel, Jules Dassin, and Federico Fellini, which would have been freaking tight, but that never happened. That's a good combination. Uh, and whether or not that's true, I don't even know. But what did you hear? You heard something else? It feels like it should be part of an anthology film. I mean, I always assumed that it was based on the length. But, you know, the research that I did for this episode, everything I read said that it's, no, it was never intended to be part of an anthology. It was just a lack of funds. He couldn't shoot any more of it. It was, a you know, just a low-budget thing. He went back to Mexico to shoot, and so he had to, you know, come up with a quick ending for it. An appropriate ending. I think it, it doesn't feel like a tacked-on ending. It also doesn't feel like there's a lot missing from this film either. I mean, it couldn't go on the way that it was for the first 40 minutes for much longer. It's just a guy standing on a column. St. Simon, this ascetic who's given up all of his worldly possessions just to stand on a column. When we first pick up his story, he's been there for six years, six months, and six days. He performs miracles. It's almost commonplace that people will come to him. And, uh, you know, there's this one worker who lost his hands because he was stealing to provide for his family. And uh, he prays to Simone to get his hands back. And poof, he's got his hands back. And everybody just takes it in stride. It's like, oh, yeah, it's just another one of Simone's miracles. Um, but, uh, yeah, at the beginning of the story, this rich man who Simone had, uh, you know, he prayed to Simone and, and his, his sick 
daughter was healed or something. So he provides Simone with a much larger column and Simone is, is happy to climb the ladder up to the top of this extra tall column so he can be that much closer to God. At that point, he starts uh, getting, I think the number 666 is probably important somehow. Sylvia Pinal is the devil, starts to present herself in, in various forms of temptation. At first, just a woman with a jug who tempts one of the priests. And Simone says, oh, you, you were being lustful. You were looking at that woman with lust. And then she shows up later as a just a little girl, another pedophilic moment in a Bunuel movie where, where Sylvia Pinal is this little girl with a hoop. And she's dressed in like... This movie is seemingly set in, you know, what the... The 5th century. <laughs> yeah. Not long after Christ, but uh, Sylvia Pinal shows up as a little girl in a fin de siècle sailor suit and tries to tempt Simon. And she keeps showing up trying to get him off that column and to give up his piety and his lack of worldliness and doesn't succeed. He just manages to continue to live on his diet of pieces of lettuce that the priests send up in a little baggie for him. And uh, finally, Satan says, uh, I can't tempt you, so I'm going to take you to hell with me. And so the movie all of a sudden cuts to modern day 60s Mexico City or wherever it is, and, and they're in a rock and roll club. Uh, Simone is, uh, you know, got this like beatnik beard and bangs and, and Sylvia Pinal is, is like a 60s party girl and they're just uh, in this club watching all these young people dance to rock and roll music, which I think is another one of Bunuel's little jokes is like, what could possibly be worse than rock and roll music? This is my idea of hell. And that's the movie. <laughs> what do you have to add to Simone? Why did you like this so much? This is, I think, his second best film. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant i think it's like it's a perfect throwback to i mean it's definitely his most visually absurdist and surreal film i think that there is a bunch of really delightful images in this that really add in everything that his other films are missing for me in a way i like the tight pacing <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, you know, it proves you don't need an hour and a half to take down an entire religious institution. I, I, I mean, this also, it has such a great comedic structure and a reverent tone that is a clear influence, I think, more so than any of his other films even on, like, Monty Python. And also it reminded me quite a bit of Alejandro Jodorowsky, even though the subject matter was totally different from what Jodorowsky would have done. The tone is very, very similar. It reminded me of his earliest films that are way more of a delight to me than most of these ones even are. But I like how punchy this one is. This one is like just coming out swinging. You know, the saint on the pillar is an antihero. His pursuit of God is completely silly and selfish and incongruent to biblical teachings. Uh, he forsakes his mother. He, you know, restores the hands, as you mentioned, to this violent guy who then immediately uses them to push his child down when she asks him a question, which made me laugh out loud because I'm a horrible person. He gets jealous of a strapping young priest, tells them to send him away. He doesn't want to see him ever again. Mm -hmm. uh, he is accepting of there's this like little person goat herder who sort of jokes, but not about bestiality and brings him all this fresh milk. And, and he kind of lets it go under the bridge because he's getting milk out of it. 
sort of overlooks everything else that this guy does, which is pretty crude, too horrendous. And, and in general, he's just a dope who goes out of his way to suffer as publicly as he can to court an audience so that his spiritual plight becomes more meaningful. I mean, like, it's like just completely showcasing religion as a comedy. I guess it's in a way that's maybe a little bit flat in comparison to his slightly more thoughtful other films. But, you know, when Satan shows up in this movie, she's a breath of fresh air. And it's not just because Sylvia Pinal is awesome. <laughs> But she's just really fun. I mean, she shows up, uh, as you mentioned, in these multiple ways. She's the sexy schoolgirl, and then she becomes this sort of sexy Roman god with a, a full beard and, and one boob out. She's then in, in the nightclub, which is also maybe my idea of hell, is a sexy mod girl. And while that's kind of an easy joke, I think the, the better joke is showing Simone in this nightclub in modern day as being this indulgent, you know, self-imposed, pretentiously isolated, vain jerk who claims that he's just above everything. You know, he's the guy who sits in the club and, and disdains all of those around him just for the fact that he needs to be seen disdaining them. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, like hell, even as a sweaty nightclub full of people twisting their faces off becomes way more appealing and way more authentic and way more natural and satan becomes the hero of this whole story yeah i mean it's simple but it's funny and there's all these great visual images like i love there's a great scene where this coffin just moves by itself down mm -hmm. through the desert right in front of him which has this very like stop animation really great look to it i love the imagery of him just standing on the pillar i think is already in itself pretty surreal i think there's quite a there's i mean a million aspects to all religions but you know catholicism all these saints end up being pretty surrealist and, and absurdist on their own in a way that doesn't really get acknowledged and i feel like a lot of this is almost like a teasing acknowledgement of just like have you guys thought about this for five, five <laughs> seconds? Like, can we talk about how weird religion is just in general? Like, that that seems to be the point of this to me. It's not some cutting, deep philosophical concept. It's just like, yo, like, this, this shit's weird, you know? <laughs> well, speaking of surrealism, you've got those swarming ants there that are right out of Ocean Andalou. Sure, And the, yeah. the mother kind of wipes them out. It's like, this isn't that kind of movie. But, of course, it is totally a surrealist movie. What don't you like about this movie? I do like this movie. You said this was lesser. Oh, I, I think this is lesser just because it's so short. It just doesn't feel like a full movie. It's very enjoyable. I just can't think of it as one of his major works because it doesn't attempt that much, but it fully succeeds at what it sets out to do. can also bring up a couple of motifs in here. I've been kind of slacking off on doing that. You've got the little person that shows up in, in most of Boonwell's films. I don't know what significance there is there. Just sort of think it's in Bunuel's mind, you know, to put myself in the mind of, uh, of Louis Bunuel. I'm thinking that here are people who are born disadvantaged and, uh, you know, are, are born to be mocked by others and treated differently. And, uh, you know, if, if that's not proof of a godless world, what is? I actually have a quote from Bunuel here, if you want to know, where he talks about, as he calls them, dwarves. Okay. He says... They fascinate me. I've worked with several of them during my lifetime and have found them intelligent, thoroughly likable, and surprisingly self-assured. And in fact, most of them seem to feel perfectly comfortable with their size and are convinced that nothing could persuade them to change places with more conventional human model. 
They also seem to have an impressive amount of sexual energy. <laughs> he says the, the dwarf and Nazarene alternated regularly between two normal sized mistresses in Mexico City. He said, indeed, many women seem to have a predilection for them, perhaps because they can both play child and lover. That seems pretty patronizing, but. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about quoting Bunuel himself is that everything he says is a joke and usually the opposite of what he actually means. And he'll just say right. things to, to get a rise out of people. But I had that right there. I needed uh, to share it with you. And the other thing that uh, is very prominent in this film are the... Uh, drums of Kalanda. There are these uh, thousands of drums being played by people in the town of Kalanda where Bunuel would spend Easter's and, and on Easter day that people would gather and just make as much noise as they could with their drums and he uses the, the sound of these drums to punctuate various parts of I feel like they come into just about every one of these movies we watch but it's this is the one where it seems most prominent it keeps coming back it's interesting because um, Bunuel doesn't use a whole lot of music in his films. Like when there is music playing, there's usually a source, like a record player, or you know, there there are certain moments there. You know, in the dream sequences when things are out of the realm of reality, he'll bring in some music. But more often, he'll use these kind of sound effects and and uses uh, sound in in really symbolic ways. So these drums, I don't know what he's uh, trying to represent with these drums, just like a stirring of emotions, I guess. And there are all sorts of little sound cues that you get all the time in these movies. Like when you hear the bells in Belle de Jour, it's her getting sexually aroused. I, I find it interesting that he's really into his sound effects, but he's not so much about using uh, much music in his movies. Most of the scenes of dialogue play out just uh, with ambient sound and no music at all. Hmm. But speaking of Belle de Jour, after this unfinished film he made in Mexico, he went back to France and finished out his career just making French movies co-written by Jean-Claude Carrier. And Belle de Jour was the next film he made, 1967. the biggest hit of his career. I mean, a lot of, of that had to do with the subject matter, which was about Catherine Deneuve playing an upper-class woman who decides to become a prostitute for three hours a day uh, in the afternoon when her husband is at work. And, you know, she's seen in various states of undress. It's not a particularly sexy movie. There isn't much flesh on display in the film, but sex is the subject matter, and, and in particular, sexual perversity and having odd proclivities when it comes to sex. And I think that really got the audiences to want to show up and check out this movie. Undoubtedly, some of them were disappointed. Is there really any nudity in this? I can't remember. I, I feel like there, there, if there is, it's barely. I don't think so. She's got a sheer robe that she wears at one point. She's like naked on a bed at one point, but I don't think you see anything. It's all sort of from the side. Yeah. There's not too much revealed in this movie, but you do get suggestions of all sorts of various types of sexual acts occurring. Catherine Deneuve plays Severine, who is another one of Bunuel's frigid women. 
you know, he sort of associates women with innocence and sex with a lack of innocence. So he uses frigid or, or uh, you know, virginal women to, to sort of explore this idea of, of being willing to sully yourself. So Severine can't get excited by her perfectly nice cute husband because she can only be turned on by forceful men. She has these fantasies of being whipped and, and sexually abused by lower class men. And we discover it at one point it, it has something to do with her being molested as a child. We get very quick glimpse of her early childhood and a uh, brutish man touching her so we start to discover what Severine has only started to begin to discover herself is that she's a, a masochist and can only get sexually aroused by being forced. And that's why she decides to become a prostitute so she can actually like sort of free herself and free this desire within her to make herself dirty, to sully herself, to be forced to do humiliating acts. And so she keeps it from her husband, and it actually is, sort of works out well for her. She's happy, and her happiness makes her husband, Pierre, happy, and they start to have kind of a normal sex life. But then, of course, uh, Michel Piccoli comes along and, and ruins everything. With his leering glares and grabby hands. Once again, plays a man with an enormous sexual appetite, and he can't <laughs> keep his hands off any woman he sees. He runs into Severine working at this brothel, and everything starts to fall apart for her after that. The first time I saw this movie, I didn't. It didn't do a whole lot for me. But this was quite a while ago. You know, this was the early '90s. I saw it, and I was hoping that uh, watching it again for this show, I would get this movie finally. And uh, it, it turned out that way. Actually, I really like this movie now. And I think a lot of it has to do with Deneuve's performance. You know, she seems like really impassive, like not emoting much, but it's, again, sort of like what I enjoy so much about Viridiana. It's this like sense of dread that's in her and you can sort of read in her facial expression. She doesn't have to do much. We just feel her fear and her dread and her humiliation. And it's another movie where it's really just watching her experience of these things that are happening to her that she's you know making happen to her uh that really like involves you in the movie and it's really funny i laughed a lot maybe not quite as comic as simon of the desert but i got quite a few chuckles out of this movie but you're unimpressed with this one too right you know, I think you actually, just this moment, touched upon maybe even the bigger reason why a lot of these character-driven films don't do it for me, for Benwell, is that there is that Catholic stoicism, which is something that I find completely unrelatable. It's like the wistful staring at the window, like uh, John Mulaney mentions in his stand-up, <laughs> describing, like, I had a girlfriend who said oh, you never understand. And he's like, well, why don't you just tell me? Like, just tell me and I'll understand it. You know, and I kind of feel that way about, I think maybe all of these characters where actually in Belle du Jour, I would say is probably his most successful character film for me because you get just a hint of what's happening otherwise. So it's not like presumed that I automatically understand this stoic acceptance of guilt and indifference to my own emotions. Like, you are shown Severine and you get these weird little spikes of that vicious past of being molested or being in some ways forcefully touched by a stranger. 
And that even is just enough to make everything about her kind of snap into place. And the first time I saw this, I probably didn't know enough about Bunuel, honestly, or I don't know, I was kind of looking at it too much in the context of not giving it a benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and I thought that it was a very moralistic film. I won't totally back away from that because, I, again, I don't think that Bunuel, for as much as he is so desperate to escape the clutches of religion uh, at the same time is completely a slave to it and there's like quite a bit about what he does that doesn't really undermine things as much as he thinks it does maybe or i don't know not enough for me at least you know what the problem is you've never experienced guilt or shame in your life that's, that's the <laughs> yeah that's, that's <laughs> it <laughs> no come on man I, I got plenty of guilt and shame but being completely unwilling and unable to express it and completely unwilling and unable to deal with it is something I don't understand. This, though, I would say that this time around, this movie actually felt a lot healthier than I initially thought it was. It actually felt like, in a weird way, it was actually really nice to watch <laughs> Belle de Jour kind of manifest her own sexual therapy and to realize that she actually is dealing pretty directly with her guilt by joining a brothel and by exploring this side of herself that she could have just smothered further with guilt and lived out her life fairly happily. I mean, they had a bit of a cold marriage as far as sex goes, but they seemed fine otherwise. Even her husband was really understanding about it. So she sort of opens this door that she could have left closed and in a way does find more happiness, but then she also gets dragged into the realities of it, which I also think is a worthwhile exploration. It isn't the fantasy that she kind of expected. It, it gave her that embarrassment that she needed to accept herself or to get off or whatever mix of the two of those things are. But it then opens the door to a whole other world of vicious jerks. And her striking out for empowerment gets knocked down by men and their posturing. So in a way, it, it is dealing with this sort of toxic masculinity, but it's not feminist, which is, I think is the disappointment here. But it is an interesting female character that you don't normally see. But I'm also convinced it's a very moralistic ending. Do you think the ending's moralistic? It's really ambiguous. I think you can take the ending however you want to take it. I mean, in a way, she's thrilled because her husband, so she, you know, she gets involved with this younger gangster who is attractive and very masculine and very possessive. And when she tries to sort of walk away from him or at least leave him in the room, he just stalks her and, and shows up at her apartment and then ends up shooting her husband in a fit of jealousy because she says, I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Or does he? Oh, is that even up? Because <laughs> then in the end, you know, he's a living manifestation of the kind of guilt that Severine gets off on. And she has this fantasy of just how wonderful it is to be living with pure <laughs> Catholic guilt out in the open and for the rest of her life and her shame out in the open. And so there is this weird sort of healing ending that's, of course, morally abhorrent and also just sort of vicious. But I also feel like in the end, it's just kind of your typical woman gets punished for exploring her sexuality. She seems to be happy to... But she, she loves it. Yeah, she's happy, lost in her fantasy in the end. 
I don't know. I, I'm not sure we even see the end of her story. I think uh, a lot of that is pure fantasy. There are clues in the movie that perhaps her husband getting shot by the gangster is part of her fantasy. Tell me the clues, Colombo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she falls asleep on her couch after the gangster comes to visit her and shows her a picture of her husband and says, this is the obstacle. So it's kind of set up that she, like naps on her couch and this is sort of her fantasy of what could happen mm. but regardless it's definitely an open-ended ending we don't know if this guilt and punishment that she's caused herself is is enough to keep her satisfied i don't know i think it's a happy ending for catholics <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's another too catholic for me movie i suppose any themes in this one besides the bells we got some feet action in this. Oh, yeah, lots of feet. Like, a lot of what we see in this movie are, are just Severine's feet, and her indecisiveness is really focused on feet, like walking up the stairs to the brothel and, and then, you know, turning and thinking maybe she won't knock on the door, and then she, you know, turns again and, and goes back. And before she has her little uh, reverie about her husband getting shot, if it was a fantasy, she's... She's opening this box of shoes and, you know, there's more foot fetishizing there. Yeah, and we've got, uh, you know, there's Kathy, the maid at the at the brothel, has a, a little daughter, Kathy. And, and mm. at one point, one of the clients notices her on the way out and sort of touches her suggestively and says, oh, is, is this your new girl? And it's uh, really kind of sleazy and, and gross, but very Bunuelian. I don't know. The only other motif I wanted to address is how Boonwell likes to throw in like little obvious jokes that seem to amuse only himself. Like, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, Pierre is, is confined to a wheelchair. But three scenes earlier from that, he notices a, a wheelchair on the sidewalk. And Boonwell very specifically has Pierre like examine this wheelchair and, and, and become sort of fascinated by it. And it's such obvious symbolism or foreshadowing that it's like clearly some kind of joke that Bunuel thinks is just funny to to foreshadow what's going to happen to Pierre this way. And I think it's also sort of poking fun at the way that Bunuel is so often described as a symbolist and how, how he throws all of these symbols in his movies. And I think the wheelchair is sort of him just sort of saying, yeah, I throw these symbols in, but they're just to amuse me. They're just kind of meant as a joke. And I, I sort of like how he throws little jokey symbols in his movies. All of these little motif symbols that I keep mentioning, I'm not sure they have much meaning at all, except that they're little jokes to amuse himself and his friends. Well, the last film I felt like was only little jokes. For him and all of his Catholic friends. <laughs> yeah, our final film was The Milky Way. This movie would be hopeless to try and uh, summarize the plot because it's so stream of consciousness. Basically, you're following these two beggars who are on this 
famous pilgrimage that starts in France and travels through the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela in western Spain to the Church of St. James, where the saint's remains are. You know, since the 6th century or something, people have been making this pilgrimage, and we don't know exactly why these fairly a-religious beggars are on this pilgrimage. Later on in the movie, the whore outside the gates of Santiago uh, says, why, why are you on this pilgrimage? And one of them says, uh, to make some money. We, we heard it's uh, it's packed here. That's all the explanation we get. But really, it's just sort of this picaresque series of events where these beggars encounter all of these various moments out of Catholic history, like this sort of history of heresies in the Catholic Church, and they seem to move in and out of various time periods in history. Sometimes they'll be in a, a modern-day setting, and we'll get uh, somebody telling a story about Christ, so we'll get a flashback to the life of Jesus. And yeah, it's just sort of a series of vignettes and, and you know little stories, and, and they all have to do with the very strict rules of Catholicism and people who've broken these rules and the trouble that the disagreement over the various rules has caused and how religion has created so much strife throughout the history of humanity and the simple message of love that Jesus preached has become so perverted and so much evil and violence has been perpetrated in his name just because organized religion can't seem to agree upon what the rules are or how to interpret his teachings or uh, you know various things in the Bible. It's sort of structured like a Monty Python movie, you know, like The Meaning of Life or something, where we just get these funny little vignettes. And I think it's really entertaining, even without understanding all of the, the various references to very specific events in Catholic history and all of the rules and, and arguments that Catholics have had over the years, I still really got a thrill out of how it was structured and just how funny it was and how Boonwell just lets loose in this movie. You know, he just sort of gives up on any kind of straightforward narrative and is just here to shit on religion for a couple hours. This has become my favorite Boonwell movie. I find that really interesting because this one I found just really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just comes down to it just was weird. I, in a way, actually understood more of this movie than his other Catholic films because I actually, what I know about Catholicism ends up being stuff like the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> I'm like, I got that like early stuff. Like I know about the whole argument about if the Eucharist is actually Jesus or if it is a representation and, and the arguments about the Holy Ghost and the Son is, is begotten by the Father or, you know, I know I kind of know about this stuff, but watching this, it, it took me a while to get what he was trying to do with it. And even afterwards, I mean, I, to me, what was sort of enjoyable about this was this idea that here he is taking Catholic dogma and just showing how Again, it's that sliding scale of what exactly is holy and, and moral because that changes from year to year. It changes from person to person. And religion at the end of the day is purely a human creation and it's built on people's guilt and their egos and, and their impulses. And there really is nothing that is grounding it other than everyone pointing to the same book. But it's such a far cry from 
what was intended as to what has been presented and what's been enforced throughout the years. So in that sense, like it was interesting, but I didn't find it funny. <laughs> like at all. I didn't, at no point was I even really smiling. Actually, there was that one scene where you get this high end restaurant being set up by like a series of waiters who are all sort of in depth discussing some sort of like historic situation. Was Jesus a man or was he God? That's what they're discussing and all the various arguments yeah. surrounding that. And so this maitre d' who knows all the ins and outs of all this religious dogma and has a very strong opinion on whether Jesus was a man or a God. And um, well, Catholicism says they're all the same. Yeah. I'm sorry continue (laughs) but then uh you know when the beggars come up to the door and are just looking for a little bit of food because they haven't eaten in days uh the maitre d just shoves them away and and does exactly the opposite of jesus's teaching so it's a very long setup for a really obvious joke and it's pretty amusing for that reason it happens a couple of times where someone's telling some really long story that kind of just ends with like a very silly to undercutting punchline and then they just kind of skip to the next century (laughs) or they skip ahead several centuries the funniest part for me was when uh the two beggars are sitting in the park watching the uh the catholic school girls recite all the rules of catholicism all of the traps that that sinners fall into again like juxtaposing these uh these innocent young girls with all of these awful sins that humans commit and the beggars are, are watching this presentation and the younger beggar is kind of daydreaming about what looks like a you know some kind of revolution in the streets uh this is 69 in France so this is you know happening right after the May uprising where it seemed you know everybody had revolution on on their minds and this younger beggar seems no different he's a you know interested in the rebellions of youth and he's fantasizing about these revolutionaries putting the pope up against a wall and and shooting him firing squad style and uh some random man who's sitting next to this beggar in in the park said oh did you hear that is there a shooting range nearby And, and the beggar says no i was just thinking about the pope getting shot that made me laugh out loud and that comes up in some of his other movies, too. I know that uh, Severine, when she's hearing the bells, she says, uh, oh, did you hear those bells? And like using sound to sort of create this bridge between fantasy and reality and, and not knowing which is which and or being able to distinguish between the two. So that's that was my favorite little moment. But I really just like, you know, it's more than just funny, like all of these really crazy ceremonies that he sets up are are kind of fascinating to watch just these ordeals like the nun who's being like simon is an ascetic and is being nailed to a cross to experience the suffering of christ and bring her closer to god and just this very strange ceremony in the woods with these women who are being given the eucharist or the bishop who's pulling this ex-saint out of consecrated ground because it's you know discovered that something he had written in a diary was sacrilegious there's actually a line in the movie where somebody says the priest is talking to the police chief about the eucharist and if it's the body of christ or, or just a symbol of the body of christ and it comes up that it well it's just a mystery and and he says it wouldn't be religion without the mystery and i think that's really what 
fascinates Bunuel about religion and why he can't give it up is there's this whole mystery. There's something really like kind of hypnotic and bizarre. And even if he doesn't believe in the supernatural, that, you know, this thing beyond what we can experience in our, you know, everyday lives, there's still this sort of power in these ceremonies and rituals. And you feel like maybe if I just pay closer attention, I can connect to this thing that I can't possibly understand. And I think that's a key to this movie and to all of Bunuel's movies, you know, this mystery. He sets up this mystery. Why Why are these people behaving this way? Why? Um, th there's a lot of asking why and, and never giving an answer. And I think it's it's almost, you know, his perversity and his sense of humor that withholds the answer from us continually. And I think part of it is just his enjoyment of mystery and ambiguity and just his interest in faith and religion and how believing in God is just an act of faith. So how could we ever know one way or another if there is a God? It's this mystery that Bunuel injects into all his films that really fascinates me too. And maybe it is just another part of this whole Catholic thing that I can connect to that maybe you can. But in all religions, there's this mystery aspect, you know, this unknowable that is fascinating in the very fact that it's unknowable. And that's such a major part of all of his films, more than just the humor in them. That's what fascinates me most about these things. Hmm. I think anyone who is brought up with religion being a focal point of their lives, especially at a young age, in an impressionable age, and or you have to still be uh, religious, I think, in a way to, to truly enjoy these riddles of life. <laughs> if you're closed off to sort of wrestling with faith, or if you think that the concept of faith in itself is completely bogus and not worth your your time i think that you are falling into the cracks of of the person who will really not get that much out of bunwell <laughs> i think you really have to like have had that impression made at a young age and then you also have to be really open to challenging yourself to poke holes of doubt and then to challenge yourself to close them again or not, or to let them sort of run rampant. And I think that that is in itself is, is a really fascinating test <laughs> of yourself, of understanding who you are. And it will only strengthen your beliefs if you can sort of put yourself up to this test. And whether your belief is in atheism or whether your belief is in Catholicism or what have you, I think that it's always an interesting sort of philosophical wrestling match within yourself and and that is to me is where Bunuel is really worthwhile and, and really interesting but whether you're gonna like connect to that automatically on a personal level I don't know like clearly it doesn't work for me <laughs> all I'm gonna say is you keep worshiping at the church of surrealism and I'm gonna go to mass this Sunday and flip the priest the bird
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.